There is a whole industry dedicated to predicting the future. No, 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 I know what you're thinking, but it's not a fortune teller and they don't use tea leaves. I'm Chris Woods, and this is the Industrial Research Podcast. In the last episode, the first part of predicting the future, we showed that predicting the future is possible to a degree, but we didn't look at how it's done. And in this episode, I'm going to start digging into that. There is, in fact, a whole industry dedicated to predicting the future, and they call themselves futurists. And the whole topic of futurism and where it came from and its origins, it's completely fascinating, huge and complex. And I could do an entire podcast series alone dedicated to that story. But it's beyond what we need right now. What we need right now is to dig out those little nuggets that make sense for us. The things that we can use practically to try and see into the future. And that's what I'm going to try and do. Before I do that, though, a little bit of history is called for. So let me tell you where this all came from. In 1901, H.G. Wells wrote a prediction of what life would be like in the year 2000. He quite accurately predicted that there would be sexual equality, and we're a long way there. He predicted that road and rail would introduce commuting and people would travel. Cities would sprawl. He even predicted the formation of the European Union. And in 1935, he started to advocate for this prediction of the future. A kind of foresight, he called it. He thought people should be taught how to do foresight and it would be a useful skill. But it wasn't until... 1945, when in New York, a German academic, Ossip K. Fletcham, and I've probably butchered that German name, so I'm sure folks will correct me, but he proposed this idea of what he called futurology. And that gave us the term that we use today to refer to people who, whose profession it is to predict the future. Now, in a, a very real, real way, this profession is still emerging and it's been around since about 1945-1950. When it developed it split between a practice in the US and a practice in Europe. In the US a lot of this prediction into the future was based along technology trends. How are things going to change? And in a very real way you can see how that makes sense in the Cold War. In Europe though France in particular embraced it, but the situation in Europe and in France was very different. Countries had had their whole infrastructures destroyed during the war, and they were starting to put them back together again. And in France, the whole idea of futurology took on a bigger meaning of what type of society we would want to create, and what it would look like, and how you would do it. What policies would affect what changes and what would happen when policies combined. And that became this more philosophical, less technology-driven vision of the future. And the two were, were kind of separated. Today, though, things have come together and a little bit more combined. 
Because everybody realizes that no matter what technology you come up with, it's the way people use it that matters. And society and how society develops and the policies and legislations that are enacted all matter and they have to interact with each other. And today, futurology is used by a wide range of organizations, from think tanks to corporations, nation states and local governments all use it. And they use it as part of a strategic planning, an imagining of the future, how things could change, how an industry could be disrupted. There's even a professional body for futurologists. And it is known as the Association of Professional Futurists. But the practices in futurology are still evolving. They're not set in stone. And one of the big problems with futurology is there is no concrete, repeatable method that we can use over and over again to get the same predictions of the future. And that leaves it up to interpretation. And some people say that futurologists, well, it's just their skill. Or maybe they've got an innate intuition as to how things are going to develop. Or maybe it's just pure dumb luck. But this lack of repeatability is a detraction against the whole industry. Having said that, we've got the data points to prove that future prediction, to some degree, is possible. And when you look at what futurologists and the, and the industry is trying to do, we can pull out these golden nuggets, these common, commonly used practices across the industry and the terminology and the, the types of insights and methods they're using. And we can pull out the really useful ones. And that's the stuff we want. They are little, I guess, golden nuggets of awesomeness that give us the clues as to how to work this out. And there's probably three key things that you can take away from it. The first one is trend prediction. We can predict trends and it's completely possible. We can see and predict trends as they sweep across the world. And I kind of mentioned this in my last episode. Trends can emerge like waves. We can see as they start to form in the distance and then grow in magnitude until they, they sweep over the globe. The second important thing is that the word future is really plural. There are many futures. Some of them really desirable, some of them really improbable, others really likely to happen, but perhaps not what we want. There's a whole range of these things. But we have to work out which one's actually most likely to happen, and that's difficult. But we can do that by using a technique called a scenario. And that leads us on to the last point. We can test our futures, our, our depictions of what might happen, by creating a scenario and then trying to break it. What's wrong with my prediction? Why won't this come true? Try and rip it apart. Rewrite it, combine it with other scenarios you've come up with. And that's how we start to test these future predictions. As I mentioned in the last episode, I came up with this metaphor of the beach and the waves. Well, trend prediction, that's looking at the waves as they form in the distance and come in towards the beach. And that's really what I want to start covering in the rest of this episode. 
Let's look at how trend prediction works. There are a number of trends that today we just take for granted. They are so commonplace that we don't even think about them, but they all came from somewhere. Consider genetically modified food. Most of us today, well, we're a bit skeptical about the safety of genetically modified food and whether we want it in our, in our shopping cart at all. But that a decade ago was a completely different view. It was a fringe belief. And now it's more of a mainstream belief. And if you look at emerging trends, we might even say today that privacy is an emerging trend. When you think about all the things that are happening online with regard to privacy, you see people purchasing VPNs to connect their computers safely to the internet to stop your internet service provider from seeing what you're doing. You have Edward Snowden and the leaks about how the NSA and GCHQ are trying to snoop on what people are doing. You have data breaches happening all over the place. And just this week, Marriott announced that a data breach had occurred and 5.2 million people have had their details exposed. We've had the whole issue around elections and the data we post to Facebook and how it can be used to profile us and give us targeted adverts to persuade us on how to vote. It's a huge problem. In the European Union, they've enacted legislation, the GDPR, to try to control what happens with data. And in California, they're starting to do the very same thing. Is this a future trend? Well, at the same time, with the current coronavirus and the precautions governments are taking all around the world to control it, we're losing a little bit of our freedom. We hear about governments in Asia starting to track how people move about by monitoring their mobile phones. It's probably a worthwhile sacrifice temporarily, but is it something we want to keep giving up in the future? When we look at trend prediction, however, there is a number of different ways of doing it. And at this point, I want to talk to you about a guy called Rohit Bagravar. He is a New York Times best-selling author. And each year he publishes a book called The Non-Obvious Megatrends. And it's a great read. I highly recommend that you pick up the book. It's definitely worth going over. Once you've read all the trends he's predicted over the last 12 months, I suggest you go to the back of the book. Because at the back of the book, he outlines how he goes about predicting the future. And he calls it a haystack approach. And it works like this. First, there's this period of gathering data, gathering information and data points. And he tries to collect information about everything that's happening around him. To try and make this as unbiased as possible, he tries to go to weird places he's never been before. He calls this wandering into the unfamiliar taking the unfamiliar path to work or exploring the world from somebody else's viewpoint. And in that process, he's collecting bits of pieces, data points, stories, things like the Marriott data breach, things like the GDPR in Europe, things like 
Cambridge Analytica. And he starts to put all these data pieces together. Now, Rohit's approach is a bit different. What he's doing is he's collecting the data and storing it for a couple of months, letting it germinate, I guess. And then he goes back through it and he analyzes it and he tries to spot these trends. And he's three key things he starts to look for. The first one is looking for similarities. And essentially, when you read that description in his book, he's talking about cross-industry innovation. And that's where an idea and a concept from one industry can be applied to a second industry. There are a range of examples of this. If you just think about a touchscreen, we got touchscreens appearing on mobile phones. Now they're on games consoles. They're embedded into vehicles, into cars. They're how we tune the radio in on the car or select the next track to listen to. They've become this commonplace interface. So that's looking for similarities. The next thing he talks about is looking for serendipitous ideas. And in this concept, Rohet's really talking about spotting trends in one industry that could affect another, but don't it's not a direct technology transfer, but it, it's a trend that affects another industry. Um, he gives an example in the book, and his example is Starbucks, where he talks about how the idea of creating a coffee shop where people would come and relax, a chain of them was inspired by looking at the plethora of Italian coffee shops that existed in Italy and trying to understand how people in Italy used a coffee shop. And effectively, Starbucks were trying to replicate that in a completely different marketplace. And lastly, Rohit suggests that we try to be persuadable. And by that, he's talking about looking at a data set from multiple different angles. So take a different viewpoint and approach the same problem from a different angle. You could argue that touchscreens, for instance, are fantastic in a car if you can look at the screen. Consider the Tesla. It has a fantastic, great big giant iPad bolted onto the dash, and that's its main user interface. But with each software update, the location of the buttons change. Now, look at it from the point of view of somebody's really busy driving. And this week, Honda announced that it was about to stop uh, using touchscreens for the environmental controls in its car, its jazz car. Um, instead, it was going back to using traditional physical knobs and dials. And when asked why, the chief designer said, because it's less distracting. People can remember where it is. So you can take this data point and view it from different angles. So touchscreens, are they going to go everywhere? Do they make sense? Well, they are right now, but is this trend going to stay? Rohit's approach is good, and it produces a whole bunch of fantastic and quite insightful trends. And if you buy his book, which you should, it's, it's a good read and you'll see those trends. But by its very definition, it's subjective. As much as you try yourself to be unbiased, everybody is. And you're going to collect data that is biased and leans in a certain direction. And that's just the nature of data collection from a single individual. It's how it works. But there is value in what he said. 
We started off this episode talking about H.G. Wells, and I'm going to talk about another sci-fi author, one I mentioned in the last episode, and that's William Gibson. And there's a fantastic interview with Gibson uh, in The New Yorker. And it's a really long read. It's about 40 minutes long. But if you're a sci-fi fan or you like his books, it's it's a good read. It's worthwhile going into. But in it, it kind of covers his life and how he came up with the ideas that exist in Neuromancer. And what he does is basically what Rohit is suggesting. He has a haystack approach. He's collecting different data points. So there's a whole range of different ways in which we can collect this information. And just because it's subjective doesn't mean it's of no value. And often, as a researcher, we are coming to a problem with a particular background in a given technology area. And usually we're asked to investigate where that technology area is going to go. So having that bias could help us spot those important data points that we need to collect. Now we've spotted the trends, we've got to move on to the next part. How you put them together? Now that is a great question, and it's something we should cover in the next episode. But before we finish this one, I have a bit of homework for you to do. You see, I use a bit of the haystack approach. I collect data points. I use a tool for it. I use a tool called Pocket from Mozilla, and it allows you to save stories and tag them. And what I've been doing is going through my typical news sources and finding stories of interest, things I think are quite, quite important or intriguing or perhaps on the fringe of, of society. And I tag them and I save them. And I tag them with the name of the trend that I think it might be. Maybe it's privacy. And I put them into my pocket collection. And every couple of months, I go back through and I search from my trend, my tag, and I look at the stories and I look at what's going on today and I try to work out, is this trend really happening? Is this really what I'm seeing? And I wonder if you could do the same. I wonder if you spot any articles this week that indicate a trend to you. I would love to hear about them. You can always find me on Twitter as at MCWoods. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. In the meantime, if you want a written version of this podcast or to find out some more information all about it, including the links to Rohit's book, the links to the New Yorker article about William Gibson or anything else, you can find it in the show notes. There'll be a link to the website there with all the information. Stay safe at this time. and I look forward to talking to you next week. The music used is an excerpt from Bust This, Bust That by Professor Cleek and is used under Creative Commons.